Keep his truth with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, 63 through 71. Luke 22, verses 63 through 71 is our scripture reading and sermon text for this morning. <clears throat> Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71. This is God's word. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. May God bless the reading of his holy word. The previous narrative there in Luke's gospel ended with Peter's threefold denial of Christ, followed by his bitter weeping when he made eye contact with Jesus. Remember, in God's providence, right as Peter vehemently, with cursing and divine oaths, denied that he even knew who Jesus was, somehow he made eye contact with Jesus right at that moment. And the last verse of our last passage says he went out and wept bitterly. All of Peter's promises and his professions of loyalty were shown to be very weak once he was confronted with real danger for the cause of Christ. It was a moment, however, that was not wasted on Peter. And when he was restored and empowered by God's Spirit for his task as an apostle to preach the gospel to the Jews, he was much wiser, much stronger, and a much better Christian man. He was still frail, just as we are, but he had learned so much from that failure. His wisdom is reflected in the two inspired letters that we have from him, First and Second Peter. Peter learned the hard way, as it was inscripturated in the Gospels, and all four Gospels, not to think too highly of himself, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And at the very end of his second letter, the last thing he wrote there in 2 Peter 3, 17, he says to his audience, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. And you, you wonder if he was tempted to add, as I did. Overconfidence is a, a vice that we all have to watch out for. It's amazing how efficient pride can be as a vice. It's an efficient vice. And what I mean by that is even just a little encouragement. Uh, pride can swell and, and grow in us. If someone says one nice thing to us, that's enough to feed pride for the next six months. We tend to think far too highly of our abilities, of our resolve, of our own holiness. And this is why the Word of God constantly exhorts all of us to watch out. I mean, how many times does the Bible say that to us? Watch out. Guard your heart. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. While Peter was arguing with Jesus about the fact that he didn't think he was really going to deny him, he should have been watching and praying. 
And Jesus kept telling him, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. And Peter's telling him, no, I'll, I'll never deny you. I'll never deny you. You know, we march into sin because we neglect the biblical means of our own preservation and our own holiness. Daily communion with God and prayer and communion with God and his word. Peter even encourages all his readers under divine inspiration. In 2 Peter 1.10, he wrote, Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. And you know he's thinking, be more diligent than I was. Watch and pray. Do, do what I failed to do. Peter had fought with sin and lost. Did a face plant. But he learned from that losing battle with sin. And the Lord grew Peter. And he was able to do great things for God in the book of Acts. This morning we turn from Peter to Jesus. It is as Jesus said back in verse 53. This hour and the power of darkness are yours. As we will see the darkness which our Lord spoke of there was a very, very thick darkness. And the abuse that Jesus will endure even prior to his being scourged and then crucified is painful to read about. When God's restraining hand is lifted even a little from the unregenerate hearts of the wicked, the results are the essence of darkness. So let's walk through the passage. Look at verse 63 and 64 and 65 there. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were the one who hit you. And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Now looking at the commentators and looking at the context here, it's hard to say exactly for sure who it was that was holding Jesus at this time. It could have been some Roman soldiers, but it also could have been some of the members of the Sanhedrin itself. Jesus has already been arrested for apparently no reason. No charges, no indictment. Nothing has been said against him yet as far as why he's been arrested. What exactly had he done wrong? Well, for the unregenerate, like Cain toward Abel long ago, some people hate the righteous simply because they're righteous. And I've warned you about this many times. If you're a Christian, there will be people, you don't even have to say a word, your existence as a Christian offends them. You don't even have to do anything. They will hate you for no other reason. Jesus made it clear why the world hated him. And he also told us why the world will hate us. In John 7, 7, he says, The world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And the very same world will often hate Jesus' disciples if we really follow him and we really stand for his truth in a way that people can see. They will hate you for it. And Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, before he was arrested, in verse 18 of John 15, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, that means if you think like the world, act like the world, dress like the world, talk like the world, smell like the world, the world will love you. If you were of the world, the world will love you. Yet, because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And the temptation is always going to be to become like the world, to be loved by the world. And Jesus says, if you really belong to me, I promise you, you won't be. They will hate you. Jesus is the light of the world, and light came, but men love darkness, Jesus said. People who are enslaved to sin and live their lives in darkness and who adore and love their darkness, they don't like being pulled out from their hiding places and being exposed by righteous light. 
This is where that hatred comes from. Nobody likes being told that they're not only wrong, but that they're evil, especially if they believe themselves to be good. And this is why the very religious establishment had such an incredible, insatiable hatred for Jesus. Jesus did, during his earthly ministry with those religious leaders, with the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, he did what very, very few people had ever done. He told them to their face, in front of people, that the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, he told them, not only are you wrong, you're evil, you don't know God, and that in fact you're going to hell when you die. And that didn't sit well with them. Remember how the text of Luke's gospel identifies the Pharisees in Luke 16, 14? It says that they were lovers of money. Remember the parable that Jesus told them in response to that? They were lovers of money, so he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And where's the rich man in the parable? In hell, in agony. And he told them that parable to illustrate them. That's where you all are going. Scribes, Pharisees, you guys with the long robes and the phylacteries who make the long, pretentious prayers. You're the rich man going to hell. And they didn't like that. Who was it that was holding Jesus in custody here? And there in verse 63, there was a very large group. Remember, it was a huge group of people that showed up to Gethsemane to arrest him. A cohort of Roman soldiers was technically 600. 600 soldiers. And I also had the chief priests and the temple police were all there too. I think it was probably the temple police and the people who were in the employ of the Sanhedrin. They were the ones holding him in custody here. They're the ones that blindfolded him and beat him up here. The Romans who crucified Jesus, yes, they certainly mock him when the time comes to crucify him. But they mock him just because they heard, yeah, this is the king of the Jews. We, we hate Jews anyway. Let's really make a spectacle out of this guy. Let's give him a scepter, put a crown of thorns on his head, and we'll bow down to him and mock him and make fun of him. Hail, king of the Jews. But at this particular point, I don't think the Romans really know a whole lot about Jesus, and they don't have any particular animosity to treat him this way just yet. It was probably the members of the Sanhedrin, the temple police, their lackeys doing this dirty work. They had lots of reasons to treat Jesus with disdain and, and mockery. And notice the childish reckless abuse that they heap on him here it's childish the text of verse 63 says they were mocking him and beating him mocking and beating him remember way 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 back in genesis 3 15 right after the fall of man happens and god promises the redeemer the seed of the woman is going to come one day and he says that there's going to be enmity there's going to be hatred between those that know the seed of the woman those that know the true god and those that don't and that word enmity, that leading word in Genesis 3.15, the very first word in that verse in Hebrew is the word enmity, which means hatred with a desire to kill. And that's the way that Satan's followers are towards the church. What did Cain do to his brother Abel in the very next chapter of God's word? Killed him. Murdered him. And why did he do that? Did, did Cain pick on Abel? Uh, did Abel pick on Cain when they were growing up and steal his breakfast or something? We're told in scripture, he's just because he was righteous. Cain killed his brother because Abel knew God and he didn't, so he killed him. That's what we're seeing here. That's, what, that's the kind of hatred that we're looking at. Mocking and beating him. And Jesus is not just being pushed around a little bit here. These would have been vicious blows, strikes to his body, and the mockery they heaped upon him would have been vile. 
classless, disgusting to hear. Thankfully, it is not recorded in exacting detail. You see verse 65? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. I'm thankful it's not recorded. It probably wouldn't be appropriate to record it in detail. And what does that mean, blaspheming? In this context, lie, cheat, steal, blaspheme, curse. Satan's followers are just like him. No rules, no integrity. We're told in Scripture, we're given kind of a mind into, a window into the mind of Christ in Psalm 31, 17. Let the wicked be ashamed, let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. It's a great prayer. Lord, silence them. Psalm 71.10, For my enemies speak against me, and those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together. Remember, Jesus remains silent through all this treatment. He doesn't respond to any of this. And it's hard to imagine what these men were really doing and, and to whom they're doing it. This is God incarnate. The, the perfect God-man, the Savior of the world, the only hope that they have of going to heaven. And they're mocking him and beating him. They make fun of him and strike him over and over again. And even this had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And you need to know this. Jesus is not ducking or weaving or dodging any of it. Nor does he offer a rebuttal to their mockery. He doesn't rebut their lies, their false accusations. Isaiah 50, verse 5. Listen to the prophecy. Seven centuries before his birth, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheek to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah 50, verse 5, has Jesus simply saying, I gave. I gave my back, my cheeks, my face. Jesus gave his back to those who struck him on the back, his cheeks to those who plucked out his beard, and his face for people to spit on. Jesus came for that purpose, to give, to give, to give. And what did he give? Everything a man could possibly give. Why did he do that? Because so great was his love for his father. So great was his love for his church. God the Father's children and Jesus' brothers and sisters, his love for them knows no bounds. With such depth of passion did Jesus love his children. He willingly endured this treatment for them. All is going according to the divine plan, just as everything else does that will ever come to pass. But it's still painful to read about it, isn't it? It's awful. And the Psalms give us another picture. Psalm 109, verse 4. Listen to this. This is Jesus. These are the words of Christ. These are the thoughts of Jesus. Psalm 109, 4. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. In the next verse. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. They've rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. I've given them everything. My face, my cheeks, my back, my body, my soul. And their response is hate. It's important for every Christian who reads this account to understand all of this was endured because Jesus loves you. If you're a Christian, this is him loving you. The brutal treatment, the insults, the mockery, we're taken because Jesus loves his people that much. 
He gives his back, his cheeks, his face. He endured such terrible treatment, such painful physical abuse, and such distress, so that this could be true. John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I would ask you, do you believe in the Son? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? You believe that when he endured all these things and that when he went to the cross, it was for your transgressions, your sins. It's so simple. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who doesn't abides under the wrath of God. What fell on Christ will fall on you. Look at verse 64 there. You see what it says in verse 64? They blindfolded him. They blindfolded him. Think of how Jesus would have had to stood still so they could tie a blindfold on him. I can tell you, if I was in custody and I knew I was being falsely accused and someone walked up to me with a blindfold, I would fight them. (laughs) Like, you're not putting that on me. I would be ducking, but he just stood still. They tied that up on his eyes. Why would they do that? So he couldn't brace himself for any of the blows he was about to get. He wouldn't see him coming. They were taking turns hitting him, taking turns striking him, plucking out his beard, kicking him, and then asking him, who hit you that time? You're a great mighty prophet. Who hit you that time? Even full-grown adults can be childish and cruel. J.C. Ryle said this, the excesses of savage malice to which unconverted men will sometimes go, and the fierce delight with which they sometimes trample on the most holy and the most pure, almost justify the strong saying of an old theologian that man left to himself is half beast and half devil. He hates God and all who bear anything of God's image about them. The carnal mind is hostile to God, end quote. This is what Jesus is being subjected to here. He was subject not only to the righteous and just wrath of his father against all the sins of his people when he went to the cross, all of my adultery, all of my covetousness, all of the the slander, all of the pride and envy and sin in my life, that righteous wrath of God against my sins was taken by Jesus, but he also submitted to the unrighteous wrath of his enemies who despised him merely because he exposed their sin and their hypocrisy with a calm submission that many of Jesus' followers would imitate, and which we all always ought to imitate in our own sufferings for his namesake, Jesus just quietly, meekly endures it all. If our Lord had so desired, he could have ended his own suffering. He could have cast every last one of them into hell for their crimes and for their sins. But he was willing to pay the price, every last penny of it, for his people. Remember that cup that he prayed, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me? The cup he was handed, it was a bitter cup with the foulest of contents. But that was his mission and the purpose for which he was born. He was born for this very hour, for the power of darkness to take him completely so that he would make satisfaction to his father's justice, but also to conquer and undo that curse by rising from the dead, as we studied in 1 Corinthians 15 in Sunday school this morning. We have the ultimate proof of our Lord's bodily resurrection from the dead. And one day Jesus will do away with death altogether when he returns to the earth. And all the effects of sin will be gone as well. Jesus purchased our redemption by all that he suffered. And there was no other way. He prayed, Lord, if there is a way, let's take that way. And he got his answer. The next day he's arrested, he's tried, 
he's crucified. There is no other way for us to be forgiven. This is the path that he freely, joyfully chose to walk because of what was before him. Remember what the Bible teaches us in Hebrews chapter 12? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It was the joy set before him. He knew when this is over, it's going to be nothing but joy and blessedness in the presence of God for the rest of eternity for me. And as messengers go out and gather all of God's elect people, when they die, when they cross over into death, they're perfected in holiness, they go on to heaven. The joy that was set before him, he despised the shame. He endured the cross. He endured all of this, being blindfolded, beat up, spit on, mocked, all of it. Look at verse 66, next section, verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, and then we'll get on there just a moment. It's very important that you notice, you see the three groups mentioned there in the verse, you see verse 66, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Remember when Jesus very first told his disciples that he was going to be crucified? He said it in Mark 8, 31, after Jesus confesses that he's the Christ, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. All three groups that he said would be there show up. Why? Because he's a prophet, and everything he says is going to happen is going to happen. Even when Peter argues with him, there's no way I'm going to deny you, and he tells him, you're going to deny me three times tonight. No, I'm not. I'll never deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. No, you're going to deny me three times tonight. If Jesus says that the scribes and the elders and the tree priests are going to be there to do this, all three groups are going to be there. Because what God says is going to come to pass will come to pass. Isn't that amazing? Notice verse 66 there. The council of elders, the chief priests and the scribes. These would be the ones that would be the most responsible for his death. And they would violate so many of their own rules of justice and procedure I just want to tell you, the, the amount of literature available on the, the procedures of jurisprudence that were used by the Sanhedrin and by the Jewish people is extensive, and it's truly incredible. They had a remarkable system of justice, and they violate that system over and over again here. Things like this had to be done in broad daylight. What time is it right now? It's the middle of the night. The Sanhedrin, they were supposed to meet in a place that was called the Chamber of Hewn Stone, near the temple, for trials. But here, they're actually at the high priest's house, in the middle of the night. Matthew 26, 57 says, And those who laid hold of judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. During Jesus' day, the judicial system was well established. Every town that had at least 120 men in it would have their own local court that they called like a, a mini Sanhedrin. And this local court would adjudicate all legal issues in those towns. The great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was the supreme court. It was the supreme court, so to speak, of Israel. It had 73 men on it, chief priests, elders, and scribes. Sadducees were among the chief priests there, and the scribes were mostly Pharisees. 
And these courts required the following three things for a legal trial. Number one, it had to be in public. It had to be in public. Number two, a defense had to be there for the accused. A defense had to be there for the accused. And a confirmation of guilt by two or three witnesses. So the trial had to be public. They had to have someone there to defend the accused. And there had to be confirmation of guilt by two or three witnesses. As you're going to see, all three of those are violated here. No concern for justice whatsoever. None. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses. The matter shall be established. Listen, if false witnesses were discovered, if false witnesses were discovered, the exact punishment that the accused would have received if found guilty would be inflicted upon those false witnesses. You testified against a man's life and you were found to be lying, you would be killed. And just one more passage from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19, 16. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother." So you shall put away the evil from among you. Perjury was a big deal to them. And when this grand court called witnesses against the accused in public trials, in broad daylight, as they were always supposed to be held in broad daylight, and you would call the witnesses, here's, here's how they prefaced someone giving testimony. Okay, what do we do? I promise you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and so help you, God. Here, here's what they would have read to them. Listen to this. It is not conjectures or whatever public rumor has brought to thee that we ask of thee. Consider that a great responsibility rests upon thee, that we are not occupied by an affair like a case of pecuniary interest in which the injury may be repaired. If thou causest the condemnation of a person unjustly accused, his blood and the blood of all the posterity of him of whom thou wilt have deprived the earth will fall upon thee. God will demand of thee an account as he demanded of Cain an account of the blood of Abel. Speak. Okay, well, that, that ought to jar you to attention. Okay, be careful what you're about to say here. And there were also many other aspects of the procedure they followed to protect the accused from miscarriages of justice. One commentator wrote this, When the accused person himself wished to speak, they gave the most profound attention. When the discussion was finished, one of the judges recapitulated the case. They would like summarize the whole thing again. They removed all the spectators. Two scribes took down the votes of the judges one of them noted those which were in favor of the accused and the other those which condemned him. Eleven votes out of 23 were sufficient to acquit. So you didn't even have to have the majority to be acquitted. If enough of them were a little skeptical that you were guilty, you would be acquitted. But it required 13 to convict. If any of the judges stated that they were not sufficiently informed, they were, they were added two more elders and then two others in succession till they formed a council of 62, which was the number of the grand council. If a majority of votes acquitted the man, the accused was discharged instantly. He was let go like that. 
If he was to be punished, the judges postponed pronouncing sentence till the third day. During the intermediate day, they could not be occupied with anything but the cause. In other words, they weren't allowed to go play golf or whatever the Sanhedrin did on their off days. They had to abstain from eating freely, from wine, liquors, and everything which might render their minds less capable of reflection. On the morning of the third day, they returned to the judgment seat. Each judge who had not changed his opinion said, I continue of the same opinion and condemn. Anyone who at first condemned might at this sitting acquit, but he who had once acquitted was not allowed to condemn. You weren't allowed to change your mind from acquitted to condemned. If a majority condemned, two magistrates immediately accompanied the condemned person to the place of punishment. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, it's a just system. And there's much more written. I mean, we could do 20 sermons on this about how they made sure they protected people from injustice. And what does it show us? It shows us that these men who were supposed to be the defenders of truth and justice grossly, grossly violated both in their all of it in their murderous zeal to be rid of Jesus. There were many principles violated, just five off the top of my head here. Number one, the proceedings took place at the high priest's house and at night instead of in the daytime and in public. Number two, Jesus was not appointed anyone to defend him. There was no defense appointed for him. Three, his guilty verdict and death penalty came in one day instead of the normal three that was required by the law. Four, Trials were not allowed to happen on feast days, lest they be rushed. What, what feast are we right in the middle of here? Passover. They weren't allowed to do this. Five, if witnesses contradicted one another, their testimonies were discarded immediately. Mark 14, 56. Listen to the scripture. Mark 14, 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Verse 59, but not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Now Jesus could have rightly pointed out, um, high priest, did you notice they're all contradicting each other? That their testimony doesn't agree? What does the scripture say though? But he kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest stands up and tears his clothes and says, what further need do we have of witnesses? Right, what further need do we have of our bribed lying witnesses at this point? Because the lying isn't going real well, is it? It's amazing to watch all the biblical principles of justice from Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament, from their legal system, all personal integrity being thrown out the window in the name of their reckless hatred and their jealousy of Jesus. The very same hatred that motivated Cain to kill Abel, you see it right here. The very same hatred that motivated Pharaoh to kill all those Israelite babies in the Nile River, you see it here. It motivated Herod to kill all of the male children two years old and under in Bethlehem and all of its surrounding districts. You see the same hatred here. It's reckless. It's irrational. An irrational hatred of truth and righteousness, motivated by jealousy, by greed, by malice. All hiding, all hiding under a carefully crafted disguise of pious devotion to the one true and living God. What they're doing is pure evil pure evil in the sight of God. And it's criminal 
in the sight of man. And we know that our gracious God, he, he despises evil when it's disguised under religious garbs. He despises that. And God is particularly provoked by wickedness when it's disguised as loyalty to him and to his word. Here you have the, the high priest stands up and tears his clothes. Why, why would a high priest do that? Because someone has sinned against God and he's so devoted to God, he just can't stand to hear the, the glorious name of God being blasphemed like this. So he stands up and tears his robes. I have a question. Why didn't he stand up and tear his robes when these false witnesses contradicted each other? Why didn't he stand up and tear his robes that they were having a trial in the middle of the night? Why, why weren't they tearing their robes when Jesus didn't have a defense, when he was required to testify against himself? It's a total facade. Look at verse 67. You see it there in Luke 22? If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. That, that's a gutsy response. What he basically just told Caiaphas is, you, you have no interest in truth whatsoever, and neither does your court. You guys aren't interested in the truth. If you're asked a question, if you are ever asked a question by someone and you know that they're not interested in the truth, that person's guilty of lying. That person is guilty of bearing false witness. The weight of Jesus' words here cannot be overstated. He just told the Supreme Court of Israel that, as a matter of fact, they have no interest in the truth. None. And as a point of application, I would say to you, if you know someone hates you, because you're a Christian. If they ask you questions, it's better at times to ignore them and remain silent. You know why? Jesus said we'll have to make that judgment call at times. Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not cast what is holy to the dogs, and don't cast pearls before swine. Now, you need to suspend making that judgment. You don't want to think that everybody's a swine or a dog, but eventually you do get to that point sometimes. If you know that no matter what you say, no matter how truthful it is, no matter how glorifying to God it is, that it will be twisted, it will be used against you, you have no obligation to answer. Jesus is also fulfilling prophecy by his refusal to answer this kangaroo court. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus could easily have cited all of the Old Testament texts I just read to you from Deuteronomy, all of them, about the proceedings and what's going on here. He could have done that. And those, those people in the Sanhedrin, they would have known those passages. He could have shown them that what they were doing was wrong. But what difference would it have made? Would it have made a difference if he showed it to them? None. None whatsoever. Instead of pointing out the illegality and the unrighteousness of these proceedings, the time of day, the lack of a defense, the contradictory witnesses, and all the other forms of nonsense that this phony court was demonstrating, Jesus opts to do something else. What he does is he issues them a warning and lets them know this is not the last time that you and I will meet in the context of a trial. They knew what they were doing was illegal. Him pointing it out to them, preaching to the choir. I love his response. I mean, look at it. Verse 69, 70, and 71. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Matthew's account has a little more information. I want you to 
listen, listen to Matthew's account of the same narrative here, Matthew 26, 63. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Which, by the way, that's illegal too. You weren't allowed to do that to a witness. You make them testify against themselves. Jesus said to them, it is as you say, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. After all the illegality of this kangaroo court, a private trial done in the dark with lying, contradictory witnesses, we get pious pretensions, robes being torn. Oh, we can't stand to hear our precious God blasphemed like this. Can you feel the hypocrisy here? The acting, the pretending? Jesus had already said about these very men in public, in front of everybody, he said, these men for a pretense make long prayers and make their phylacteries wide. They wore special religious garb, and they liked the best seats at banquets, and loved to be called by men rabbi, and they announced with trumpets their good deeds. Just remember, Satan and his ministers, they have no standards, they have no rules. They will lie, cheat, murder. They pretend, piously pretend, to be on God's side. But really, as Jesus told them to their face, they're of their father, the devil. And his will, ultimately, is what they want to do. Jesus said in John 8, 44, to his opponents at the Feast of Tabernacles, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now Jesus is here accused of blasphemy, but you know, even according to the Sanhedrin's very careful definition of blasphemy, Jesus has not done that either. Did you know you could only be convicted of blasphemy if you actually spoke out loud the covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. You can only blaspheme the name of God if you actually said it. Also, it was not considered a capital offense in Jewish law to claim to be the Messiah. You could be charged with causing trouble, but it was not a capital crime to claim to be the Messiah. Remember, too, while this is going on, Peter's denying his Lord three times. Jesus is so alone here in these moments. His disciples have fled. Peter's denying him. And the whole world, it seems, has turned on him. I want you to notice again. You see verse 69? I want to emphasize this to you again. Verse 69. From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the hand of the right hand of the power of God. R.C. Sproul said this, quote, In a sense, Jesus was saying, Yes, I am the Son of Man, and this is not not the last time we'll meet in the context of a trial. I'll be back, and I'll be back with all authority of heaven, and you will be judged by me. They secured what they thought was a crime worthy of death, blasphemy. It was the best they could come up with. So now it's time to take Jesus to Pilate, to Pontius Pilate. And it's almost comical. It's almost comical to think that any of them, that Caiaphas, the chief priests, the elders, any of them actually believed a Roman procurator would care if somebody blasphemed their deity. You know Pilate's going to hear this and go, I don't care. 
He, he, what did he say? Something against your God? I have no use for him either. Why don't you guys go back to one of your synagogues? Not interested in any of this stuff. Surely they knew that Pilate would do his best to shrug them off and make them leave him alone. What's amazing about the whole ordeal is that although Pilate does eventually have Jesus crucified, he says numerous times in public, he's perfectly innocent. Another total miscarriage of justice. Has it ever happened before? A Roman procurator, a judge, stands up in front of a massive throng of people. He's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. I find no fault in him. And a few hours later, he's nailed to a cross. So determined are these people to kill Jesus. They will even make themselves look like fools in front of their Roman overlords to do it. Indeed, you, you, have, to, you have to know how hard it would be for Caiaphas, for the chief priests, for the scribes and Pharisees, for them to actually bring themselves to say out loud with a crowd, we have no king but Caesar. They were willing to even say that. You know how much those people hated Caesar? How much they despised him, but so great was their hatred of Jesus, so reckless was their sin. That's how reckless rebellion against God is. It's, it's lunacy. Even when we sin as Christians, it's crazy. Haven't you ever looked back at yourself and wondered, what happened? What, how could my mind go there? How could I have done what I, what I did? What all of us have to see here, what we have to recognize in these men and, and their recklessness, their recklessness with the Lord, their recklessness with their own eternity, that's what we would be apart from the grace of God, isn't it? Apart from his love and mercy and grace and kindness to us, was there forgiveness and was there salvation for these men if they repented and believed? Of course. And I think many of them did. We've seen the mockery, we've seen the beating of the blindfold of Jesus by these wicked men who held him in custody to put a blindfold on him so he couldn't brace himself to be punched in the face and to have his beard ripped out and to be pushed around, mocked, made fun of. We see the, the illegality of, of Jesus' trial before the Supreme Court, the high Supreme Court of the Jews, and pious pretensions and, and robes being torn because of devotion to God and so on. Jesus will next be seen by Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again. This is our Savior in action. This is what he came to do, fulfilling all that had been written of him in the law and the prophets. Before noon the following day, he's going to be nailed to a cross. Before noon the following day, he's nailed to a cross. Success! They got what they wanted. Nailed to a cross. And so many amazing things happen between now and that moment and even during that time on the cross. We're, we're entering into the climactic zone of biblical revelation of all of human history. You know, Paul understood how significant it was that he was nailed to a cross. Being a former Pharisee turned Christian, I'm going to close with words that he wrote to the church in Colossae, Colossians 2, 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We bear our sins no more, we who know and believe in Jesus Christ, because our sins have been nailed to the cross, and we bear them no more. Let's pray. Our righteous Father, we bless your name and thank you for the work of Christ.
that he endured this mistreatment. He endured all the shame and mockery. We pray that you'd be with us as we sing now to you and be with us the rest of this Lord's Day. May our hearts rejoice that he was willing to silently endure it as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. For he was the true Lamb of God, the true Passover Lamb. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed once for all, that all who believe in him would have the blessing of full forgiveness for the rest of eternity.